Coming up next, the booking reads Reminds of the Day. <laughs> <laughs> It's an Australian book. like Tom Waits? No. Why does anybody... Hey, welcome to the booking. That's a little Tom Waits bringing you in off of my laptop. That is a song, believe it or not, I'm going to stop it now because Tom Waits is terrible, that is a song that has significance for the novel that we're about to read. That's right. True or false, Brandon Chasdine? True. Scholar who's a baller of reading? Maybe. <laughs> hey. <laughs> hey, Brandon. How are you doing, Nathan? Pip, pip, and a jolly... Whatever. Biscuits and crackers. This is and Queens, Nickers, tea and tea and Buckingham <laughs> Downing Street. And down- <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be getting uh, <laughs> an apology <laughs> at the top of a show here soon for, for our uh, British friends, I'm sure. Our British friends love us, don't they? <laughs> oh, they don't do. They, <laughs> they do. Nice. And- <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Buckingham. <laughs> I'm your humble and humble and obedient. Oh, so so humble. (laughs) So humble. So So obedient. Obedient. (laughs) We've got the pastor who's a (laughs) master. A master. (laughs) The pastor who's a master of reading over there. (laughs) Hey, Jake, welcome to a very British edition of uh, uh, Bookening. Thank you. Thank you. Chip, chip, and biscuits. All right, that's enough nonsense. We're talking about remains of the day today, Brandon. That's right. Button that Rema- jacket up. Yeah, it's time to engage in some light banter, some dignity. Have you guys been practicing your three witticisms a day? I Indeed. Have. Hashtag remains of the day reference. Wasn't joking about Tom Waits, folks. That's going to tie in. We're going to find out about it. I wouldn't be at all surprised if we found out about it later on. A little segment called Contextual Texan. That's right. Or in this case, it'll be called. The contextual Texan. The contextual, the contextual Texan. Texan. That's right. <laughs> I was trying to come up with some British thing. I painted myself into a corner and... Context with Jeeves. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, this is the booking. Now, if people haven't listened to this show, they probably want to know what happens. What, here's what happens. Jake, Jake's a pastor and Brandon's a scholar. And I'm just a guy, your uh, humble and obedient host, agent provocateur. We indulge in some light banter like mm-hmm. Stevens does in this book. A little, a little japery. <laughs> Like I'm doing now. Yeah, japery. Some, some japery. That's a word, right? No, it is a word. I just haven't heard it in a long time. <laughs> I'm using it correctly, right? No, no you are. <laughs> and then following the japery, we do something called donor shout outs. Now, donor shout outs is this part where people give us money for some reason because they like our content and they want, us to, want it to continue. They want to support us, buy us a beer, whatever. They give us money. We shout them out. Some of them, the, the ones that give us enough. And then... What's going to happen? Brandon, he's going to give some context. Mm. That'll be a segment called Contextual Texan because he's from Texas. He's going to give some context for the work. Mm -hmm. And then we'll talk about our baggage. I don't know. You can just listen to the show. Basically, we're going to talk about this book, Remains of the Day. It's going to be, will it be as good as Close Reads? Will the book be as good as Close Reads? Yes. (laughs) How does the book, Remains of the Day, stack up against an episode of Close Reads? No offense to our lovely friends at Close Reads. No, of course not. But I think Remains of the Day is better than you. (laughs) I think the remains of the day is better than us <laughs> as well. So it is by a Nobel Prize winning genius. That is true. All right, fellas, let's uh, do some dinner shout outs. Oh. What? what? Jippy. Hooray. <laughs> Jippy. Oh, whoops. I started Tom Waits. Oh, japery and draperies. <laughs> <laughs> Our first patron, we're going to start it out with Professor X. Is there a gimmick today? British. <clears throat> Professor X. <laughs> Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. <laughs> Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. <laughs> Nathan, not Nathan. Nathan, not Nathan. <laughs> Benjamin Tiberius and his wife, Dana, the lovebirds. Benjamin and Dana Tiberius, the lovebirds. Good. Impeccable British accent. Impeccable. Well, Jake's a good old, he's a Yankee. 
He's got a doodle down. dandy. Yankee doodle do or die. He doesn't do. He wears that feather in his cap every week. He's got week. a feather in his cap. <laughs> Call it macaroni. He's yeah. got an American flag draped around his shoulders right now. And there may or may not be two eagles, one perched on every one of his shoulders. Oh, right. Every and one of them. He's every got time a, he takes a step, right, yeah. fireworks. Fireworks go off. And, yeah. and Jane Kitter, who are cold and love cheese. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese. <laughs> <laughs> what are these accents? I don't know. <laughs> All right. Good. Not good at Let's just do the rest of the show like this. <laughs> like a weird malfunctioning no. Jewish robot. <laughs> My beloved mother Beth. My beloved mother Beth. 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 <laughs> John and Jill, the lovebirds. John and Jill, the lovebirds. Robert. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. Your mom and your mom. My mom and my pap. <laughs> and the inscrutable Jenny Z. The inscrutable Jenny Z. Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds. Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds. I'm sorry, folks. I'm sorry. That was a very that was a silly donor shout out, even by <laughs> even by our standards. That one kind of abandoned all hope of a theme or anything. Just you know, I blame myself. I blame myself. No, I have no ability to do accents. Well, I don't. Have, I have no will to try. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's owner shout outs. Thank you for shouting. Or thank you for shouting us out, folks. Thanks for giving us money. Go to patreon.com forward slash the booking if you'd like to be part of this wonderful thing. If you'd like it to go longer, if you'd like to hear more stabs at uh, different accents, if you'd like to hear Brandon do a French accent. Ah, oh, yes. Oui, oui. <laughs> And then you can right now. You don't have to do anything. You just did. Uh, hey. Uh, oh, the guns are going off. Bang. Dignified guns this time. Dignified. Very dignified. Give us a hail and hearty yeehaw. Oh, yeehaw. <laughs> this, of course, is a connection text and part of the show where Brandon shares some much-needed context for the work in question. In this case, the remains of the day. Where do we begin? Nathan? Where do we begin? We usually begin with a bio. We do usually begin with a bio. We've kind of got this in... Cookie cutter fashion now. Cookie cutter fashion. At least as far as the beginning happens. We always begin with a bio. Then we. I don't as know far as it begins, we have a beginning. First of all, Brandon, how do you pronounce his name? Because I feel like I'm going to mess it up. Because I suck. And I, I'm supposing it's Kazuo Ishiguro. Kazuo Ishiguro. You agree with this, Jake? I agree with that. Okay. It sounds like that's the way you should say it. Ishiguro. Ishiguro. I'm just going to call Ishiguro. him Ishiguro. His friends call him Ish. As I found out oh, in right. one interview. No, they seriously do call him Ish. There you go. <clears throat> and so we'll call him Ish. Okay. I feel like he's an old friend. Yep. Call me Ish. I guess I should start out one of the things I did for context, which was unusual this time. So I actually pretty much just read his, his oeuvre. His oeuvre. He has seven novels he's written. I listened to The Unconsoled. I read The Remains of the Day. I read Never Let Me Go. And I read The Buried Giant. Never let me go. So you went above and beyond for the folks, Brandon. Well, I just really, yeah. Or you just like I was, really? I, I was into him. So let me ask you this: Do you recommend that our listeners read other novels by Ishiguro? Yes, you like them. I, I liked. I liked Never Let Me Go. It's good sci-fi. Sci-fi, as opposed to bad sci-fi. I thought he only wrote books about post-colonial British. Yeah, stuff. you thought he was just a, some post-colonial Japanese writer in in Britain. No, that's not all he writes about. In fact, he rarely writes about that. So his first two novels, so we can jump right into his bio. Sure. His first two novels, one was artist, An Artist of the Floating World. The other was Pell View of the Hills. Those two novels were actually about Japanese citizens in Britain at the time. Well, actually, Pell View of the Hills is. Artist of the Floating World is actually about an artist in Japan after World War II. And so people began to think that he must know a lot about Japanese culture. One interview I read gave an artist of the floating world to people who were traveling to Japan, saying that this will teach you all about their culture, everything that you need to know about it, which is funny because he actually has never been to Japan. Really? You know, or at least for like the first 20, 30 years of his life. It wasn't he born in Japan? Except for the fact that he lived his first five years there, but not long enough for him to actually remember anything. He lived his entire life in England. And so what he realized was that if he was going to be boxed in and remembered as just a Japanese writer unless he did something different. And so he decided to do his next novel, Remains of the Day, completely in a different setting, which is right after World War II. The butler culture, the British high house culture that we've talked about a lot with Jane Austen and stuff is where he set this novel. And he wanted to set it there so that he could kind of have more of a universal appeal. And then after that, his novels have been kind of all over the place. Never Let Me Go is kind of a futuristic novel to an extent. It's, it seems to be set after World War III when we've discovered how to cure all our diseases by using 
clones and their body parts. So we harvest body parts from clones. And so mm. the novel set from the perspective of these clones who are raised so that they can die. It's really good, actually. Huh. That's like a classic sci-fi conceit right yeah, there. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's good stuff. And then his most recent book is this one called The Buried Giant, which what he wanted to do was write a novel about what would happen if there was a culture who <clears throat> completely suppressed certain memories because they were just too traumatic. And so the setting he ended up deciding on was um, he read Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and decided to set this novel in the time right before the Saxons killed all the Britons in early British history. And so that's where this is set. He doesn't, he, he writes across genres. He takes an idea first. He has this idea for a novel. And if it seems what well, he says to have emotional power and weight to it, then he'll find a setting for it later. And so it can sometimes take him up to 10 years to actually write a book because he says he'll have all these ideas. He has little notebooks that he carries around. He'll jot down two or three sentence ideas, but unless they really grab hold of him and really seem to have life, he'll just toss them out and won't go with it at all. Hmm. And so, yeah, it's pretty fascinating the way he works. But then, so I guess this is just sort of a brief introduction to the guy before we actually get to his bio. So just a a brief bio about him. He was born in 1954. So he's, is he our most contemporary that we've Uh, read? Ernest Klein. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The most contemporary author. (laughs) We're talking about authors. (laughs) Um, Uh, Nate Wilson? Yes. Marilyn Robinson. Oh, indeed. Yeah, Marilyn Robinson. Now she's probably older than him, right? Yeah, they're fairly contemporary to one another. Anyway, so he was born in Japan. His mother actually lived through the atomic bomb dropping on Nagasaki, and she remembered it. And so she survived her whole, she was the only one actually injured. It was because like some debris fell on her, but she was actually in the city when the bomb fell. And so this was a part of his mother's memory. Whoa. Yeah. And that, and we'll come back to that later. And his father was a scientist and an oceanographer. Hmm. And that's actually how they ended up in England was his father was invited to be a part of the National Institute of Ocean Oceanography. Yeah, studies. Thank you. Oceanography. It's a weird word to say. He moved there when he was five. And so some just some various things that he says in interviews that he I read of him. He grew up in Britain with samurai stories and other tales told by his mother. She once read him the whole of Ivanhoe, Ivanhoe in Japanese translation. <laughs> and so he had this weird in-between British culture and in-between Japanese culture. So he never quite felt like he belonged either completely. You were you were also mentioning this to me. Before. Yeah, a little right. teaser for upcoming. We're going to be reading Raymond Chandler, who completely different genre, completely different kind of a writer than this guy is. But he did it did remind me of him a little bit in, insofar as Chandler was born in Ohio and then at an early age went to England and was educated there and just always kind of felt an outsider. And I think in a way that we'll, be, we'll, we'll find it has some similarities to Ishiguru, has a little bit of a weird outsider's wry perspective yeah. on class and on the society that he found himself living in. So yeah. anyway, a little teaser for Chandler. We'll get there, but... Yeah, so he lived there for five years. His parents always expected they would go back to Japan. And so they never really assimilated. And so he says, we were visitors, so my parents always looked at the Western people, the British people, as a kind of natives in a strange land. I was always taught to respect the customs of these natives, but I wasn't expected necessarily to adopt them. And so that's just, that's the environment he grew up in. He wasn't necessarily British or completely Japanese either. So it was this weird in between what postmoderns call liminal space. Liminal space. Liminal space. Go look it up, kids. What's also interesting about him is that he never got really into books or writing until he was in his 20s, until he went to University of Kent and started to study. As a teenager, he actually was a musician. He played a lot of music. He wanted to be a musician. And even today, he still plays some and writes lyrics for some jazz bands <laughs> who has albums that they've produced with his lyrics. Huh. You can go and you can find. He wanted to be a musician. So one way to look at him is as a failed musician. And so he turned to literature. He says here, it wasn't until his early 20s that he discovered Dostoevsky and Charlotte Bronte. And those are the two that... uh, I know. Those are the two that got him into uh, literature. Those are just the two he mentions. I'm sure he loves a lot of other people. Are you sure you don't mean Tolstoy and Jane Austen? Oh, that's exactly what I meant Eh, to say. He started there. It doesn't mean that's where he ended. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he. those were his gateway into literature as he found these, but he wasn't in his 20s. So I find that that's pretty interesting. It was, he published his first novel at 27, A Pale View of the Hills. And actually this was after he went to, so it, he was in his mid 20s and he found this writing course at the University of East Anglia. And he kind of happened upon it by accident. And it's interesting because we'll be talking about Flannery O'Connor and how she went to the writing programs in University of Iowa and how that was a very esteemed program. 
in the early 80s in Britain, MFA programs were kind of actually looked down upon. And so this was something that wasn't, he, it was pretty cheap. It was something he could do, but he wanted to be, he thought he might want to be a writer. So he went there, he studied with Malcolm Bradbury and Angela Carter, two authors of the time, who the, everybody really wanted to be at the time was Ian McEwen. I don't know if, I've never actually read Ian McEwen. He's most known to everybody because they made a movie on his book, Atonement. Yes. I, I, haven't, I haven't ever seen the movie. Either. I have not seen the movie or read him. So he went to this, he wrote a short story and the people there liked it. And it eventually became a Pellevue of the Hills, got it published in 1982, and the rest is history. He, people really liked the book. Then he wrote An Artist of the Floating World a couple years later, won some awards. I think one of them won the Whitbeard Award, which is a pretty big deal. And then finally in 87, he, for this is actually from an editor who first published, who, who actually brought the stories to it first at Faber and gave him his first advance so he could finish his novel, said that... Around 1987, he was really taken by Jeeves. He was reading a lot of Wodehouse and, Je and especially Jeeves. And then two years later, he writes Remains of the Day. And that's when his career really takes off. Remains of the Day won the Booker Prize, which if our listeners don't know what the Booker Prize is, it's Britain's best picture of the year for books. Mm -hmm. It's a really big deal. Got started in 1968 by a publishing company and was immediately known for giving the award to elite, real literary novels. What are some other winners that our well, listeners might know? I thought you might ask that. So yeah, you came prepared. Um, yeah, I came to play, buddy. Is that what you said? Yeah. Let's see. We've got Iris Murdoch, The Sea, The Sea. William Golding, not the Lord of the Flies, but Rites of Passage. Right One that I've mentioned before, Salman Rushdie, Midnight's Children. Kazuo Ishiguro, The Remains of the Day. Hey. Some people might know who Coetzee is. He wrote J.M. Coetzee. He wrote Disgrace. Okay. Julian Barnes, The Sense of an Ending. And then could have sworn that that uh, Irish writer was on here. John Banville, The Sea. So a lot of big names in British literature have won this award. And so after that, his career really took off. So The Remains of the Day was written in 1989. And then 1995 is when... Um, Trying to think of who might be a good, uh, actually P.T. Anderson, the director, mm -hmm. is a good, I think, analog to what happened to Kazuo after this. Just sort of do it, started doing whatever he wanted, mm -hmm. whether people liked it or not. And things just got really obscure. So the unconsoled, so there's a famous uh, literary critic, James Wood. He said, the unconsoled created its own type of literary badness. <laughs> so he hated it. But some people now think it's his masterpiece. And so The Unconsoled, it's about a pianist, going back to his musician days, who comes to this town to give a concert. And then it's just sort of this, not stream of consciousness, because it's not from his perspective, but just sort of weird, absurdist chain of events that happens. So if you've ever read Kafka, it, mm -hmm. the closest example I can think of is Kafka. Okay. That nothing seems to make sense what's going on. He goes to one thing after another and he has no clue what's happening. A lot of people think it's Kazuo just doing like a dream. It seems to just be this character's dream. But it's a weird novel and it was just him kind of doing whatever he wanted because he won the Booker Prize. They made the movie in 93. It was a pretty big deal. Anthony oh, yeah. Hopkins. Remains of yeah, the day. Yeah, it was nominated for Academy Awards. It may have won some, right? I think it did. We're going to watch the movie, folks, and we'll talk a little bit more about the movie at that time, <clears throat> but that won't be today. And so then in 2005 years later, he wrote When We Were Orphans. Five years after that, Never Let Me Go in 2005, which is another one of his really famous novels. In fact, um, Andrew Garfield played in a movie adaptation of that not too long ago. Spider-Man. Spider-Man, that's right. And along with a pretty famous actress. I can't remember her name. I'll look it up for it's you. It's not Kiara Knightley, but the other one. The one that looks like Kiara Knightley. Never let me go. I think it is Kiara Knightley, isn't is it? Is it Kiara Knightley? It is. No. Yes. Kiara Knightley, Kiara, Carrie Mulligan, and Andrew Garfield all started okay, in that there movie. There we go. Yeah. So that was made into a movie... Remains of the Day and Never Let Me Go Together have sold over a million copies. Well, He's doing fine for himself. And then you get The Buried Giant in 2015. Some people really liked it. Some people really hated it because you just can never really expect what he's going to do. And then in 2017, he wins arguably the biggest award an artist can win. He wins the Nobel Prize in Literature. One year after Bob Dylan had won it. All right. Yeah. And in fact, here's something that he said about Bob Dylan. In many ways, I think that's the first time I became interested in using words. In a very controlled way was when I was 13 years old and I heard my very first Bob Dylan album. 
It's not one of the very famous ones. It was called John Wesley Harding. And yeah. so that was his nod to Bob Dylan and how influential Bob Dylan was. So again, this early musical stage of his life becoming very influential in his imagination, in the way that he crafts his works, well, stuff him, like that. Him winning the Nobel Prize last year is why we ended up reading. We had the, our book list set. Yes, we swapped this out for something or other. I think it was like The Stranger by Yeah, Camus. we got rid of Camus. That's right. We were going to do Albert Camus. I think we made... The right, the right choice. choice, yeah. Yeah. This yeah. is better than the Camus. We might come back around to Camus one of these days, but yes. Just, then just some uh, interesting th- facts then about the novel itself. One of the things he says is he was very consciously trying to write for an international audience. And he said, one of the ways I thought I could do this was to take a myth of England that was known internationally, in this case, the English butler, and using that as his setting. And so then just to then quickly, I think it'd be helpful to talk about what he does with setting. Because one of the things that I really found interesting about him is the way that he handles craft and writing. So one of the things he says about setting is he says he's always had a problem with setting. I was uneasy about people mistaking me for a journalist or a historian. And I thought that by moving to a Western setting for something like the remains of the day, people could actually measure the distance between historical accuracy and my imagined world. But then he says, he laughs, he says, oh no, but actually they said, this is fascinating. This is how butlers actually spoke about their duties. But actually, when he wrote Remains of the Day, he was surprised to find out how little there were about servants that was written by servants. And so it was amazing that so few of them had thought their lives worth recording. So most of the stuff in the remains of the day was simply made up. Hmm. So almost everything that happens in this novel is pretty much just his imagination about what a butler must have been like. So I know that from one article that I did read, he did read some. He tried to find these things that he could draw from. And he makes an interesting point that he says that there's like this perfect moment to write the book. It's when you've done just enough research, and but not too much research. Because if you've done too much research, all you do is you end up writing a historical novel. Hmm. But you got to get right to that point where you can live in that moment, but not put yourself there. And, yeah. yeah, just but not just be writing history. Mm-hmm. He got just enough, apparently, because I mean, this feels like 1950s Britain to me. Yeah. And it seems pretty real to me, the world that he's imagined. So then he says, by the time he got to writing the remains of the day, I really realized that the essence of what I wanted to write was movable. For me, the essence doesn't lie in the setting. Where might the essence lie? Without psychoanalyzing, I can't say you should never believe an author if he tells you why he has certain recurring themes. But two influences that are on this book, one you played at the beginning, which was... Mr. Tom Waits. Yep. Ruby's Arms. Mm -hmm. And so part of the problem he had with his novel was that he just was... The whole thing was about this tightly buttoned up British butler. And apparently the novel was just going to be that way the whole time. But then he heard this song, Ruby's Arms, which apparently is about a hobo leaving his love. I don't know the song that well. People could listen to it. In the interview I watched with him, he said that... Waits somehow captured the idea of someone talking about love. And I tried to listen to the song and I didn't get this at all, but I don't like Tom Waits that much. And he does. So whatever, whatever's clever. He said Waits captures the someone who isn't good at talking about emotions or has never talked about emotions who suddenly is. Apparently, that's what the song is about. or That's what happens in the song. So he thought. I got to get that moment in. And apparently the song is directly responsible for him going back and inserting the line that says something along the lines of my heart was breaking in the novel, which wasn't there initially. Initially, the ending never had the, which seems like when you read it now, it feels like the whole novel's building towards it when Stevens has just a moment of actual self-knowledge and understanding. Yeah, it's the most striking line of the novel. Right. Sure. And he went back and inserted it based on this Tom Waits song, apparently. Yeah. And so the song is Ruby's Arms. And what I saw, he said, he heard the song, reversed a decision he'd made, that Stevens would remain emotionally buttoned up right to the bitter end. Mm -hmm. His rigid self-defense would crack and a hitherto concealed tragic romanticism would be glimpsed. Mm. I find moments like this really interesting and intriguing when an author is writing a book. Um, I think we mentioned it with Anna Karenina, that at first it was going to just be a novel about how Anna was absolutely wicked and her husband was going to be more pious and lovable and likable. But then as Tolstoy began to write the book, it just completely changes. Mm -hmm. And so you see the same thing here, that this one little thing that helps unlock the character and it becomes a better book for it. Absolutely. Right. And so... Other influence, if people want to go and get some context, you can go watch The Conversation, apparently by Francis Ford Coppola. I've not seen it. I'm not sure whether we can recommend it or not. No, but but it's Gene Hackman. Yeah. And he's uh, playing this guy who bugs like government wiretappings and stuff like this. And his whole goal is to be the best bugger. So that was obviously influential because Stephen's whole goal is to be the best butler ever. But then the conflict is this person wants to be the best while serving something that is questionable Mm -hmm. at best. Mm -hmm. And so in this novel, obviously, Lord Darlington is a Nazi. Right. So spoilers. 
That's not a spoiler, right? It's not a spoiler. It's not exactly fair either, I wouldn't say, but we'll, we'll talk to about say that, that he's a Nazi. Yeah. I don't think it's fair. Certainly that's what the people of Lord Darlington's time would have said about him. But. Yeah. There are some interesting things this he has. I, I found him actually a fascinating person to read about just with the whole process of writing. Mm-hmm. And I, well, I won't spend a whole lot of time. I actually have a lot about it, but I won't read it all. I will say very quickly in regards to that, I would encourage people to look up YouTube videos of interviews with this guy. He's really articulate. Seems, I don't know a lot about him personally, but he seems humble about the craft. And it's just rare to, I only just watched an interview this afternoon in preparation for this recording, but it's rare to have an artist of any type be as articulate about their work and as kind of open. I mean, he's, he's Kate, you know, there are things he doesn't want to talk about. or About their work, you mean as in the process? Yeah. He just, you know, the woman asks him questions about what he was thinking about with Remains of the Day. And he really gives her not pat answers like a lot of authors would and not evasive answers like, uh, you know, almost any author that you see talking about their work is going to be either pat or evasive. And he's neither one. He's very articulate and seems to understand what went into the making of his books. And he doesn't protect his image either. So he talks about the fact that a lot of what he writes is garbage Mm -hmm. and that what we get is the good stuff. But so he, in that one part where I got the stuff about Ruby's arm and that, yeah, it's actually from an essay called How He Wrote Remains of the Day in Four Weeks. And so what he's talking about is he actually got to a spell, a dry spell in his writing career where he wasn't taking the time to write. And so finally his wife said, well, why don't you just sit down and just write? And so he would, for eight hours a day, he would call it the crash. He would just write from eight in the morning until 10 at night with some breaks for dinner. And he would just write and it wouldn't matter the quality of what he was writing. He would just write. Mm-hmm. He said the whole goal was to just sort of get into the mindset of the character he was writing about. But he said most of what he wrote during that period was garbage. But at least the story was beginning to take shape. But it's just neat to see a writer and encouraging to see a writer in the process like that and where not every single thing they write is gold, right? right? Where they have to throw away, he says, he, you know, probably has to throw away 90% of what he writes because it's just not worth keeping. But there has to be a process of just sitting down to do the work. Even someone who ends up winning the Nobel Prize like that actually has to just sit down and do the work of writing. And it's good to see him humble enough to just talk about it because a lot of people such as guys like... um Hemingway, for example, who always said things like, writing's easy, all you have to do is sit down by a typewriter and bleed. And that's a really cool sounding thing to say, but it doesn't really tell you anything about Hemingway's process or you think a lot of guys just have this romantic kind of way that they talk about it. Yeah. And actually that's how he starts. I can't remember if it's that essay in particular, but it's one other place where he was talking about the process of writing. He was saying a lot of people want to romanticize the act of writing. And he says, maybe for some people it is that romantic, but for him, it's actually just something he does. Mm -hmm. It's a job and he has to find a way to get it done. He has his process and I mean, uh, he's amazing at it, but still it's a job that he has to get done and he doesn't want you to idolize him for it. So I really admire people in any craft or art that have that kind of view. I think we talked about it a little bit with Anthony Hopkins who played the butler in the movie we'll be watching. He was, he's just a guy that memorizes his lines, shows up, says his lines, it's the way to be. Yeah. One last thing, I guess, to say about what he thinks his writing does, what he thinks literature does. What he deals with is what he calls emotional truth. So he says, I think literature is important to try and maintain standards and truth, especially emotional truth. Here it is. So for me, literature is very much about human feelings and sharing human feelings, hopefully across the barriers and the walls that we have created. So his goal is not to be, so we've talked some about how you have philosophical writers. In fact, if you look at this Booker Prize winning writers, they actually give you genres. So you have philosophical novel, biographical novel, historical novel, historical novel, historical novel, historical novel, war novel, novel, novel. And so his goal is not to write necessarily, he he will write those genres, but his large goal is to um, share with us this world of feeling that can somehow, he hopes, access truth and somehow access reality. Whether or not he does it, who knows. But what this does get us to is sort of the broader contexts around the way literature approaches reality and truth in today and also the influences that he had. So we've talked quite a bit about modernism, postmodernism to an extent, but just as a quick reminder, the big catalyst for literature would have been World War II and Everything that happened before and after World War II was just completely changed because of the war. World War I was kind of the start of it. World War II kind of put, well, for one, the brutalities of World War I were just escalated with World War II. You had Hitler, you had the Nazi, you had the concentration camps. You just had brutality that was highlighted with World War I that was just escalated to like the nth degree with World War II. And so 
everything that happened after that was people thinking, you know, well, we can't, how do we even know truth and reality anymore? And that's kind of the way we look at postmodernism, French philosophers sitting around saying, well, we can't really know truth. And that would have actually been what Camus would have been. He was an existentialist. Fun fact, a lot of people point to Dostoevsky as... Yeah, he was one of the first existentialists with his notes from the underground. Boo. Yeah, boo. So, but he was writing this... So, he started writing in 1958. His mom... Well, he didn't... Sorry. He he was writing in the 1980s. But his mom lived through World War II, as we said. He heard these stories and he was living in the aftermath of that. But he's far enough beyond it to not really be like the postmoderns as they were immediately after World War II, right? But there are definitely postmodern elements in his writing. And what what do I mean by that? Well, okay. what do you mean by that? What do I mean by that? Well, um, the ambiguities. So you can either look at postmodernism as like the philosophical movement that happened after World War II as reality. We can't access reality anymore. How do we know truth? You get guys say that all we really know are what is what we see. And the meaning is in like the advertisements this what they call the signifiers of culture that are all around us, but we never really can access truth. If there isn't even, if, if there ever is truth to even access and get at, right? Now that's postmodernism, like the cold stuff of postmodernism, the philosophy of postmodernism. There's definitely art that's influenced by that, and so a lot of the artistic movements that is influenced by that would emphasize our inability to know the past, the unreliability of memory, sort of this deep sadness and guilt that comes from the past, the unreliability of the narrator. And so these are sort of the trends that come out of postmodernism. If you want to know more about postmodernism, you can go take a philosophy course. But the literary trends that come out of it would have been these things. And you definitely see these trends in Ishiguro. You see he's very concerned about memory. He's very concerned about the guilt of the past and the way it relates to the present. And he's also very concerned, almost all his novels are from a first-person perspective, and how that affects the reliability of what you're reading. Like, can you actually trust Stevens and what Stevens is telling you? Right. Am I right in remembering? It's the problem of the thing of memory. Am I right in remembering that there's actually a point in the novel where Stevens revises? Like, I know, I he know does it multiple times. Yeah, yeah. But where he actually says, "I got that wrong earlier." Yeah. Now let mm-hmm. me correct it. Yeah, I think he does it two or three times. He's like, actually, maybe I'm remembering that incorrectly, right? Like maybe yeah, I don't. There's rem- a. There's a uh, I think maybe one of the first times he does it, he attributes a scene or a, a line to Miss Kenton or a phrase right. or some dialogue to Miss Kenton that was actually uh, actually belonged to Lord Darlington. That's right. And then he recreates, you know, the scene where she brings in the flowers and then he kind of gets muddled about it or the scene where he's standing there and she's behind the door crying and he right, sort of kind of put her the fragments of her grief. yeah and then it, so so he yeah. kind of like there, there's something representative about that scene that he connects to like a couple of different instances or whatever and right not sure where to yeah so the unreliability of him his memory all these things these are very so these are very postmodern at least in the way that literary theory and criticism looks at it these are very postmodern concerns i mean to be honest they're Literature was writing about these things well before postmodernism. I mean, in some sense, the reliability of the past and our memory of guilt, that's going to be the main theme of the Iliad. So, I mean, you have this character telling a story and the guilt of the war and all these things and how they relate to the present. You can definitely read that back into that. But these are things that get emphasized more than they were before with postmodern culture. And so the authors are being very um, intentional about writing about these things. And almost every literary critical essay that's been published in the last few years is talking about postmodernism and memory. So it's like the postmodern crisis, discourse, parody, memory, modern and postmodern metaphors of self, mind, and memory, the second war and postmodern memory, memory as forgetting. And so why are they doing that? Well, because a lot of them are wanting to make arguments like in our Trump culture, a lot of people want to forget the past so that we can just have this glorious present that misremembers everything about the past. Misremembering, that's something we've been accused of. Mm -hmm. It is indeed. (laughs) Neo-fascists. So you can see how it can quickly take a political turn. But then it also gets into interesting things about guilt and the way that we do actually try to at least pretend like we don't remember the past. And so the question then is, so here's, you want to hear some junk? Oh, yeah. This assertion, this assertion, this is a theorist talking about postmodern philosophy. This assertion of the textuality of existence and the difficulty slash impossibility of accessing a reality outside of representation and signification were not, at least initially, applied specifically to history as a concept by Derrida, but but its implications in the postmodern world still resonate, particularly, as we shall see, in the case of traumatic events and historical incidents that serve as sites of communal and individual identification for oppressed peoples. 
I could not have said that better myself. No. I could have. Yeah. <laughs> you want to try it? No. Yeah. Oh, it's junk. <laughs> so that's the sort of stuff, that's the sort of nasty thinking and clotted thinking that you get in the academy when people are really just thinking about postmodern theory and actually a lot of postcolonial theory and stuff, which is interesting because just as a quick aside, postcolonial studies, all that means is looking at literature that deals with the fact that British was once a colony. The Britain. They were a colonizer right. and they had colonies. And so you look at literature that was written by the people that were colonized. Mm -hmm. You would think that Ishiguro coming from Japan would be seen as like a postcolonial person, but he's not really at all. Guys like Salman Rushdie, V.S. Naipul, those guys who are writing around the same time are seen as postcolonial because they come from India. But he's really not, and I think that he actively tries to not be seen that way by, as we said, the way things he does with genre and setting. He refuses to have his genre and setting limit him. Mm -hmm. He does whatever he wants, pretty much. And yeah. it's only bound by the story he wants to tell that can somehow tell us the truth about the feeling and emotion that he's wanting to get across to us. I mean, in a nutshell, that's him. That's what he's trying to do. Whether or not that's postmodern, I don't think he's necessarily really postmodern, but I do think he deals with postmodern themes. Certainly not abstract or absurdist or <clears throat> what some of our listeners might think of when they think of... Yeah, it probably would help to bring... So most people, when you think postmodern, you're going to think of like Samuel Beckett. Right, or Dolly paintings or... Yeah, uh, absurdist... Surrealist stuff. Yeah, surreal. He definitely doesn't fit into that category at all. But does he have the sort of postmodern angst about the past? Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's pretty much all over remains of the day. Does he have the postmodern angst about whether or not we can actually know ourselves and know our own motivations and whether that has the power to change anything about us? Yeah, I think he does that too, right? I think so. We'll talk a little bit more about that next time. But so, yeah. so anyway, so those are kind of the context surrounding him. All right, Brennan, any more context? No. We're all context. That's a good context. And yet, the unreliability of memory may keep me from, like, it might just be my idea of your context, really. Like, it could just be completely misremembering. It's what really I said. my context. It's not. This you. book was by Salman Rushdie. That's <laughs> yeah. what I remember. That's right. And uh, it's about us colonial. There's a buried giant in there, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Kara Knightley is the main character. I do know yeah. Kara Knightley is the main character, and so should she be in nothing. Because she has cheekbones, and those cheekbones are an insult to the great Jane Austen. <laughs> Let's face it, folks. We all know it's true. I'm just the one that's brave enough to say it. Jane Austen's cheekbones are, nope, <laughs> incorrect. Jane Austen's cheekbones are lovely things. Cheekbones anchored on a face that wrote six amazing novels and some juvenilia that we'll never read. Jake, what baggage? Shoot, I'm doing this in an absurdist postmodern way. <laughs> Hey, the airplane's going over. The surreal, melting yes. <laughs> airplane in a desert of, there's a half camel, and I don't know why I'm throwing Dolly in there, but just, I just enjoy Dolly, that's all. I'm not afraid to admit it. Jake, what baggage did you bring to this book? Baggage uh, check. The airplane went over. Baggage check. It means we talk about our baggage, and that's about all we're going to have time to do before to wrap up this episode. But Jake, what baggage did you bring to Remains of the Day? I, I didn't really bring a lot of baggage to the book at all. I don't know Ishiguro, and I've not seen the Anthony Hopkins film. I am not Japanese or British. My knowledge of high house culture would be comes from movies and TV and Jane Austen. So let's list it off. You got your Downton Abbey. I've watched, your, I've watched some episodes of Downton Abbey. You got your Jane Austen, obviously. You've read some yep. of those, watched some of those. Yep. What else do you got? I didn't actually watch much of Downton Abbey because didn't Downton really care for it. Lame. Apologies to those Downton Abbey fans out there. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. It's fine. No apologies. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize that you invested in that show. and uh, Yeah. You got to learn to bail on things, folks. You got to learn to bail on things. Not I mean, your It's really hard for me to bail on things, but yeah. I bailed on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to be able to give things up. You, you might be two seasons in and you realize, eh, you know, I've gotten what this show's out. And you give up on it. Uh, what else? Let's see. What well, is the it? Crown is a... The Crown, yeah. Well, it's not High House culture. It's That means it's Buckingham Palace. Yeah. Well, I forgot to mention, is 10 Downing Street... That's par that's Parliament, isn't it? Yeah, apparently Ishiguro's picture hung for a while in 10 Downing Street, and he is knighted. There you go. It feels like everybody's knighted. Yeah, everybody gets a knight. You get a knighting. <laughs> you get a knighting. You get a knighting. So yeah, not a lot of baggage. That's the real baggage I brought to it was that the last book I read was Ready Player One, which was Candy. <laughs> yeah, and, a little bit uh, of a... You know, you, went, you go from Austin <laughs> to Ready Player One, and that's just like... Whoa, whoa. Culture yeah, shock, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then you coaster. turn around and you come back to the remains of the day. 
the gears, my gears were grinding a little mm. bit just making those transitions. <laughs> yeah. yep. uh, the, I mean, that fact colored my reading of this n- novel more than any other factor, I would say. Well, that's what baggage is for, to admit things like that, because they do make a difference, for sure. Can't pretend like they don't. Yep. I had not seen the movie. I still haven't seen the movie. We're going to watch the movie, though, and talk about it on this fine program. So we'll get to that. I'm interested in the movie because I understand that Harold Pinter had a hand in the screenplay. Yep. Did, took his name off of it because he didn't like what Merchant and Ivory did. Anyway, I suppose we'll talk about all that when we get to the movie. But I was always familiar with it as a movie, familiar with it as an Anthony Hopkins joint. So that's primarily how I knew it. I had not read it. I am generally not a fan of, I know, I know I'm a huge Jane Austen fan, but generally speaking, British culture is a turn off rather than a turn on for me. I have not watched The Crown. I'm, I have no interest in watching The Crown. I will not watch The Crown. I don't mind if other people watch The Crown. It's just not for me. I don't care about Upper. It's just Jane Austen succeeds, I would say, almost for me in spite of those kinds of cultural trappings. Anti-Anglophile. I generally don't like things about... I do do like uh, Woodhouse. I like Jeeves and Worcester stories. Those are some Butler stories I've always enjoyed. And it is impossible once you've read Jeeves stories to not bring that, to not have that color your experience of any Butlers afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Same. So... Ditto. Ditto. Brandon says ditto. Brandon, what baggage did you bring to this fine novel? What baggage did I bring? I read this novel, I've read it twice before. Once I read just because I was really into Salman Rushdie and he was along the same line. So I read Remains of the Day, watched the movie with my wife. And then I took a class in grad school. The best class I took was on postmodern literature. It was one of those rare classes where the dynamic between the students and the teachers just right. And so we had really amazing discussions. Cool. She was really good. Her name was Ranu Samantrai. I'm sure she doesn't listen to this, but Ranu, one of the greatest teachers I've ever had. She did a great job leading discussion. She was definitely knowledgeable and in charge, but then also had us all talk. And so she was great. And it was fun. The class was fun. So that definitely colored my remembrance of the novel. And then a cool thing happened actually the other day. So I'll go to the, when I'm in town, I'll often go to the library here and do studies mm-hmm. and hang out with Jesse Eisenberg. Yeah. Is that the cool thing? <laughs> oh, that's the cool thing. Did you see? No, fun that's fun. not the cool thing. Well, we have to stop and tell people about this. I'm sorry. People, if you don't know this, we live in a town which is occupied by the great Jesse Eisenberg. Lex Luthor himself. That's right. Jesse, Jesse E. And he sometimes goes to the Monroe County Library. He does. And Brandon was was there. I can go to the Monroe County Library. I don't have to buy a coffee and feel like I can just sit there and be in the library and study. And you, in fact, have a creepy stalker photo. I do. Of Jesse Eisenberg. Jesse Eisenberg. I do. But. And I have a memory (laughs) of, I have no creepy stalker photo, but I do have a memory of Jesse Eisenberg walking past me, making eye contact. That was a strange story. Nodding, because now that I remember. And smiling. Yeah. I think in gratitude for the fact that I did not out him. Because I sent a sort of text to the bookening guys saying, hey, I happen to be sitting in the same room as Jesse Eisenberg right now. And then like two minutes later, Nathan's right <laughs> over my shoulder. Yeah, we're like... <laughs> I was working there, yeah. there too. So it was that was a small world thing. The other th- situation is also a small world thing. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. I just finished reading Never Let Me Go. Mm-hmm. It was the first time I had read a new Ishiguro novel in a long time. I'm walking to the library, and guess who drives by and waves really enthusiastically? Jesse Eisenberg. No, Ra- Ranu Samantrai, my professor. Oh, first time I had te- seen her in a long time. There you go. So it was really small world. a strange little recurrence of the past, if you mm-hmm. want to look at it uh, as postmoderns would. Yeah. So. yeah, so I read that, and then I really got into it and just started reading his other stuff. And I mentioned the postmodern memory stuff because that's it's all over this stuff. Uh, buried giant, one of the big themes is a giant has breathed oh, this mist over the land that has taken away everybody's memory. And so, and then the question is, do you kill the dragon so that you can remember the past? Mm-hmm. Or do you let the dragon stay because maybe you don't want to remember the past? <laughs> so, and that's the question of the book. Huh. So it's, yeah, so. Well, I know having talked about this stuff, I've been feeling a little self-conscious because I think some of our listeners probably have read their Chesterton. And so they're like, are, are you guys just like saying that this Ishiguro guy is a morbid, modern, self-obsessed no, actually, he might use some of those tropes and deal with some of those themes, but he seems to handle them in a responsible way. And that's why he, he's interesting. Yeah. From my experience of having read one novel and listened to Brandon talk about the other ones, he's uh, he's a good author, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> we need a better somebody have some awesome joke or something to end this episode with. Come on, Jake. 
Come on, Jake. <laughs> we need some banter. <laughs> we need yeah. some banter. <laughs> we need some banter. Wait. Uh, <laughs> Three witticisms. Quick. What's in this room? Uh, uh, guys, we got to work on our banter. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> got to learn how to please you guys with my banter. <laughs> in my banter book. <laughs> Today was written and produced by Nathan Robertson. It featured the great, the great, the incomparable Brandon Chastain doing context. Hey, Nathan. Brandon C. and Jenny Z, both inscrutable. No, Brandon's incomparable. He's oh. very scrutable, though. You can scrut Brandon <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> 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 you know, but, uh, Jenny Z, completely inscrutable. Uh, yeah, Brandon. Incomparable Brandon C., the inscrutable Jenny Z. The comparable... But inscrutable Jenny Z, the scrutable. incomparable, scrutable Brandon C. We also had the fantastic, the beloved, the, the fan favorite, fan favorite <laughs> Jacob Q. Menzel right there in the his house. <laughs> and deeply irritating. <laughs> According to the most recent, according to the most recent iTunes review, Brandon, the non-academic academic. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Nathan, good. the deeply irritating. This is America. People are entitled to their opinion. Anything. I, <laughs> yes. I find myself to be deeply irritating sometimes. It's America. <laughs> it's America. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can go to at not famous Nathan. If you want to follow Jake on Twitter, you can go to at Jacob Mensel. If you want to follow Brandon on Twitter, then hit the bricks, sister. Ain't nobody got time for that. Hit the pavement, brother. Hit the bricks, sister. Get out of here. Take a walk. Take a long walk in the sticks, because you can't follow Brandon on Twitter. He ain't there. He's on Instagram. B. Scott Chastine, or Chastine Landon Title. You can follow The Booketing on Instagram and Twitter as The Booketing, at The Booketing. Uh, what else can people do? You can follow Warhorn Media on all the things, as that one at Warhorn Media. You can support The Booketing. You want to give us some money so we can keep producing quality content like this? Then here's what you do. It's very simple. You log on to the internet. So that's step one. You log in. That's my my AOL login sound effects. And then your dad is mad because he misses a business phone call because you're on there for an hour and no one can call. But you get on the internet. You you, you go to www.patreon.com forward slash the booking. It takes like 40 minutes to load. Because we're assuming you're doing this in 1998, I think. Because you're listening to this podcast through some sort of time device. It's my assumption. So you get on the internet. It's fair. You, fair assumption. You, uh, your AOL or your Blue Marble, your, your uh, what are some other internets that people might not might have had back then? Time Warner. Anyway, you get on the internet. You go to patreon.com forward slash the booking. The website doesn't actually exist yet. I, I don't think Prodigy. so. Prodigy. Prodigy? Yeah. Yeah. Prodigy. What you do is you wait about 15, 20 years until the booking becomes a thing. Then it's very easy. You get on the internet, your smartphone, your tablet, whatever. You plug your brain in. Maybe you're listening in the future. Maybe you're listening 100 years from now. We're all brains in jars doing this podcast still because they resurrected our brains, put them in jars, and made us podcast. Just jack in to the internet, baby. Or whatever it is that you have now. Wave your f- hands around like Tom Cruise. Like Tom Cruise in Minority Report. Point is, I guess if you're a brain, it would be your. Yeah, we've we, this is we've achieved the singularity by now, probably when oh. whoever the people listening to this. So like the villain from Teenage. <laughs> yes. Krang. Krang. <laughs> that great. Who would we be? If Techno we were Ninja Krang. Turtles? Who would we be if we're Ninja Turtles? I would be. You would be some combination of Michelangelo and Raphael. Who? No, you. Because oh, I'm a party dude, obviously. Yeah. And that goes without saying. But then which one's Raphael? The red guy. He's the angry one? Yeah. So I'm angry. And <laughs> I'm the angry turtle. He's cool that, like, but rude. Cool but rude. And Michelangelo is a party dude. Okay, so I'd be one of those. And then I guess that means you're Leonardo. No, I don't know. You got to kind of be all of them, don't you? Because Leonardo's the leader. You're the leader of the show. Yeah, but you're the leader of Warhorn Media, so you can be Leonardo. Leonardo's the worst. Nobody wants to be Leonardo. He's blue and he's got katanas. Yeah, and he's also a dork. He wants to be Raphael. You want to be Raphael? Who do you want to be? Brandon is clearly Donatello. Oh, well, that goes without saying. (laughs) Easy, guys. (laughs) 
<laughs> What's wrong with Donatello? Yeah, Donatello's cool. Donatello's yeah. makes You're nowhere near the cool microphone, machine. by the way. Hey. What does Donatello do? He makes He makes the stuff. He makes he machines. does machines. Donatello yeah. does machines. Uh, Leonardo Donatello. leads, Donatello does machines, Raphael's cool but rude. And, and Michelangelo is a, is a party, party dude, dude, as we know. Yeah. Yeah. Party! <laughs> Donatello, he's, he knows everything. He's the no, guy, I think, yeah. he's the scholar. I'm, I'm on board. The, I'm Donatello. Yeah, Donatello. He's the genius. You've got, yeah. Donatello is my favorite. He's got a purple bandana. He's got yeah. sticks. He was my favorite, too. So you guys get to be hybrids. When I, when I dressed up as a Ninja Turtle for Halloween, I went as Donatello. Yeah. You're, you like meet and merge by both being a little bit of a hybrid of Raphael with somebody else? Well, I'm clearly 100% Michelangelo. We don't, we don't share that one, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> no offense, Jake. <laughs> I don't really think of you as a party dude. No, you have many fine no, qualities. No, I'm not trying to say I'm Michelangelo. But you have some of the fire of who's the red rebellion? Raphael. Raphael. And you've got some of the <laughs> great leadership qualities. And, and general straight laced. Of Leonardo. Squareness. Of Leo. Captain America. But Leo's got the coolest weapons. He and does. he is the leader. Like There we go. I don't think there's anything to be shit. You want to be Splinter? You can be Splinter, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I'm fine. Somebody's got to be Leo. I would rather wield a bow than the katanas, though. Who has personally. a bow? Donatello. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a bow like a staff, not a bow like a like a bow. Like a bow, like a bow staff. That's yeah. Legolas. Right. Legolas is one of the best Ninja Turtles. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Can it be him? <laughs> is this the turtle. longest outro we've ever had? <laughs> I don't possible. know. That, there was one where we Pig. talked about meat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey, folks, there's, no, there's nothing else literary that's going to happen. I think we're done. hanging on for this long. If, if you've been hanging out hey, for speaking this. speaking of machines. Yeah. We're only trying to make this episode seem longer than it yeah, is yeah. to discourage you from clicking on it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. Discourage the haters from clicking yeah. on it. It's your girl. He said that he often likens himself to somebody trying to build a flying machine. He's like Donatello. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Leonardo da Vinci, he's the one that came up with the flying machine, the yeah. helicopter, he whatever. He <laughs> Dan Brown. <laughs> Dan Brown, yeah. Who do you think you are, Ishiguru? Dan Brown. You're no Dan Brown. You're no Dan Brown. Definitely no Ernest Klein. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Support us. Give us money on patreon.com forward slash the booking and follow us on all the social medias. Is there anything else they need to do? I always forget. Hey, write us a nice review on Apple. iTunes. iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Go there. Give us five stars unless it's a larger star system, in which case give us the maximum amount of stars. Yeah, don't give us five out of a hundred. No. I'm going to turn this thing off now. <laughs>